I'm Mark McGettigan, aka the FPL General. I've had three top 500 finishes during my time as a Fantasy Premier League manager, and I want to help you to be the very best fantasy manager you can be. So join me every week as I share my tips, tricks, and insight on the Athletics FPL podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual places, and listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Athletic. Hello, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with myself, Ali Maxwell, and MC Squared, Michael Cox and Mark Kerry from The Athletic. One week and three games to go in the Women's European Championships. And Michael Cox, we have a serious quartet of teams left in this competition. Yeah, four of the favourites coming into the competition, the four group winners as well. Um, I think the quarterfinals were, well, a couple of them are tight, but I think... They were relatively predictable in terms of who would go through. Um, but yeah, it's all set up for a really good final three matches. I think it's been a good tournament um, so far. But I think you need good semis and a good final if it's to be remembered as a good tournament. You were at two of the four quarterfinals. That's what we'll be breaking down today as well as previewing the two semifinals, one of which includes... England. Mark Carey, how are you? England semi-finals of a major tournament. Here we go again. Yeah, yeah, no, all good. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. We're going to obviously reflect upon the, the Spain game, but if not for a, a good final five minutes of, of the Spain game, then going into the start of extra time, we could be speaking about England in a very different light, but fortunately <laughs> they did get through. So uh, all positive from here. Well, they certainly did. A memorable England knockout win from behind against Spain. And when I take a deep breath and think about Wednesday night, you know, the first words that I hear are from Robin Cowan, the commentary where she goes, space opening up for Georgia Stanway. I must have watched that clip. So many times, an iconic goal, iconic commentary from the magnificent Robin Cowan. Michael, you were there at the game, which I'm very jealous about. It was a a game that had huge tension, long period of huge concern for England at 1-0 down and then pure release, relief, elation. It must have been amazing to be there. Yeah, it was good. It was a really good atmosphere. I think that the scenes at full time were, it felt like a really major win, actually. Um, And yeah, I think... Overall, I think England probably deserved it. I mean, I think they they were outplayed for the first half. um, And I wasn't necessarily convinced they would get a goal back until they actually did. But I thought Mm. from there at 1-0, I thought England were much the better team. I thought Spain really went into their shell. I understand that, you know, the way they play with possession is, is a very good defensive tactic. But I thought it was almost too cautious. I thought they made quite a negative step backwards. And then when they needed to get a goal in the what, the final 15 minutes or so of the game? Uh, in fact, longer than that, final 25 minutes of the game. I thought they were really lacking. So I was a bit disappointed in Spain in that respect. Um, but yeah, overall, really good game. When you like to talk about football in in the way that we do and look at 
the ebbs and flows of a game, the, the tactical battle. Sometimes there's not a ton to say. And I dare say tactically, some of the other quarterfinals were um, fairly rudimentary and fairly basic, following a similar pattern throughout. This was not that at all. And the ebbs and flows of it, the 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 differences in momentum made for a brilliant um, tactical battle as much as, as anything else, no matter who you supported. Michael, so much so that your breakdown of this game on the athletic site uh, was about the six tactical decisions that shaped the game. Six tactical decisions, Jeremy. That's insane. <laughs> etc. Etc. Uh, you were you were in your element here. It's fair to say. Yeah, it was. I really enjoyed that. It's not often I write like a really tactical piece that I do kind of straight away from the game rather than like you know from Y Scout and and using grabs and stuff. But it was just. It felt to me like the game was really shaped by the various decisions of the managers. Um, and I think in the end, I mean, I won't repeat all those six uh, decisions. You can read them on the <laughs> site if you're interested. But I thought the key one really was when England put on Alex Greenwood for Rachel Daly, which I thought was a really good change because I, I actually think in a way it was quite brave because that was England. Was that Vigeman's last change? It was last change in 90 minutes, mm. yeah. And if England hadn't got a goal, I think she was you know, opening yourself up to criticism, you know, your last change, you've got other attacking players on the bench, you've got Bethany England, you've got Nikita Paris, and what do you do? You replace an attack-minded left-back with a kind of defensive-minded left-back. <laughs> but the knock-on effect, of course, was that um, England stopped the threat down that side. I mean, Del Castillo was the player who had caused all the problems in the second half, including creating the goal. So they did that. They were able to put Millie Bright up front and, you know, she's shown before for England that she is actually a pretty good plan B. And of course, the value of doing that rather than just, you know, throwing on another striker was that when England did get the goal, they could just go back to back four. Bright could go back to defence. Greenwood, obviously, perfectly comfortable at left back. It's quite typical of Serena Wiegmann. She's She does prepare for every eventuality. Mm. And I think not only did she prepare for what she was going to do with Bright, but she prepared for what she would do if England did get a goal. And it's just little things like that that I think make such a difference. And I think, again, was in, in marked contrast to Spain, who to me almost put all their eggs in the we're going to bunker down and try and keep a clean sheet and then couldn't really do anything after that concession. So very good in-game management, particularly with tactical shifts and with substitutions. Uh, however, not a very strong start for England and uh, found themselves behind against this Spain team and, and almost went out of the competition. So let's um, rewind to the start of this game and, and how the team set up and how they started. Michael, what were England struggling with here? Unsurprisingly, I think they struggled in the midfield. Uh, I think they just struggled to get a grip in that zone. Um, a lot of that is just because the, the quality of the players. I think Patry had a very good game in the holding role. Uh, Bonmati, I think, is probably the best midfielder at the tournament and, and pretty close to the best player in the world. Um, and also Caldente, who played the kind of role that I'd say Iniesta used to play for Spain back in the day, kind of starting on the left, but actually becoming a central midfielder and basically forming a diamond rather than, you know, it being just a triangle. And I think England really, yeah, England really struggled with that. And I don't even think they got a grip on the game in the start of the second half. It really, to me, felt like throwing the kitchen sink at it a little bit later on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Spain, I thought this was probably the best game Spain played in the tournament by quite a long way. And had they seen it out, had they defended a bit better and seen it out, I think it would have been a very impressive win. This is kind of what I mean before about the, it's funny how the narrative does change because as you say, Michael Spain, I thought did play really well for 
for long periods. And it was always going to be a bigger test for, for England than the previous games. I mean, I looked at it across the group stage in Northern Ireland, 27 shots that, that England had, 25 against Norway and only, well, only three shots on target across the whole game for, for England against Spain and two of them obviously ended up as as goals. And I think it was 10 in total uh, in terms of the shots that England had. So of course they were going to be stifled a little bit more in attack despite how good their, their strong attack is, but it's because Spain has such a, a control over the game and Del Castillo coming on especially and just had that great threat from from the right-hand side and just kept channeling England's uh, left side and obviously Rachel Daly struggling and eventually coming off as a consequence. So I think that was especially where they struggled throughout the game and, until the the changes were obviously in the middle um, and certainly at the left-back with Rachel Daly. Yeah, it was a nice Spain goal, wasn't it? Del Castillo had that portion of the game where she looked absolutely terrifying um, and, and certainly had Daly on toast uh, and finished off by Gonzalez. Uh, you know how uh, when players of uh, with religious faith uh, cross themselves after scoring a goal or often when coming onto the pitch, for example, um, to, to give thanks? Uh, if you watch that goal back, I think Gonzalez does the quickest post-goal crossing herself that I've ever seen. Absolutely incredible stuff. Probably within less than a second of the ball hitting the net, she has she has given thanks, um, which I, I thought was really good to see. Um, in terms of the turnaround, the, the clever changes from Wiegmann, and then there's that squad depth that we've spoken about. Um, we've had to change the way we spoke about it because initially we spoke about it as being, um, as allowing Wiegmann to change her starting 11 uh, if she wanted to game by game. She hasn't made a single uh, starting 11 change yet, but... Uh, Kelly making an impact off the bench, uh, but of course the equalising goal was Russo, again, being too much to handle for two Spanish defenders, an aerial ball. Um, I'm not sure if we can quite call it a knockdown, but uh, she certainly uh, caused enough issues for that loose ball to fall to Toon, who was who was running onto it. So uh, another excellent substitute cameo from uh, Alessia Russo. We're going to talk about her uh, in previewing the semi-final. Let's talk about England's uh, opponent, Sweden, and how they got there, beating Belgium 1-0. I-, I referred to it or hinted to it earlier when I said not all of the, se- of the quarterfinals were quite as tactically fascinating, um, Michael. Certainly fewer momentum shifts in this game pretty one-sided yeah it was one-way traffic completely and um but i don't mean to be too harsh but belgium just aren't very good i mean really they they it was a bit of a surprise they got out of the group they probably deservedly beat italy in that last group game but i, I just thought they offered nothing here and i don't even think it was just a, a lack of ambition or anything i just just couldn't really get the ball forward very well couldn't get players up the pitch um fair play to them they um yeah they they were very committed. They blocked shots well. Everard in goal has been one of a number of very good goalkeepers in the tournament. But uh, it took Sweden too long to get the goal, but it was, I mean, overwhelmingly deserved. I mean, yeah, looking at the, the numbers again, 33 shots from Sweden, which was the joint highest in the tournament so far. And you obviously think about it as a quarterfinal. Maybe that would be a bit more realistic in a group game where there's maybe a bit of a wider disparity in quality. But for a quarterfinal, it should be shouldn't be that that big mm-hmm. of a difference. So only three shots for, for Belgium in the game as well. And I think there's probably a wider point in terms of Sweden, in terms of how much they create versus how much they score. I think they've obviously spoken about their their quality to, to finish their chances and not necessarily being clinical, but 
I think you can look at it one of two ways. Obviously, they're getting the chances. They're creating good chances, granted against a not very strong Belgian side, but it only needs you know a couple of those to, to go in against England that they are getting into good positions, maybe not clicking quite as much in attack, but still getting into good areas. And as I say, you only need a couple of those to, to actually go in, to be converted, to actually, again, maybe change the narrative. It's a tough one to write about this or, or to, to comment on, I think, as a journalist, because... There's a massive disparity between the two sides. Sweden are, are very, very good. Some of the best players in Europe. Belgium, you know, a lot of their players aren't professional. And so on one hand, you're thinking, well, maybe we should be charitable about Belgium and their players because of their effort, etc., etc. But then you think, well, the sides, it's countries with a very similar population, very similar resources, similar level of calibre in terms of the men's side historically. The difference is Sweden was ahead of the game and, and piled so many resources into women's football development when no one else really cared and Belgium didn't and, and this is the result so to a certain extent I, I don't think we should be too OTT on being charitable about Belgium they just you know as, as a footballing nation just weren't that bothered and, and this is the result they, they have three shots in the game where Sweden have 33 mm. Just on the you know the, the lofty XG numbers not being matched by the literal goals scored I know it's such a small sample size how many games have we had in the tournament probably only 28 or so it feels to me and I don't know if you guys have have noticed this or if there's even any particular point to it it feels to me we've had quite a lot of games where the XG numbers have been huge on one side and the goals haven't matched it you know England in the first group game it probably didn't rack up quite as many. I think it was about two and a half and scored one. There have certainly been other um, examples of the the more dominant team having completely one-way traffic but not winning by many goals. And then, of course, we have had uh, the occasions where the goals have flowed. England, of course, France as well, uh, and a couple of other uh, occasions as well. So it, it's... I mean, it's it's a big part of of our pod each week, even during the season, isn't it? Is is trying to sift through um, narratives and trying to find conclusions when the pure fact of of finishing and attacking execution um, really is often the, the the most important thing. I completely agree, and I think it speaks to a wider point, which I know that you and I have spoken about before, Ali. Is that the XG model for the women's game is sort of fueled by the same as the men's game, which I think is a really interesting point and probably something we can come on to at length maybe in another episode. But, uh, you know, I spoke to Opta and asked them whether it was, yeah, the, the model for all of the XG for this tournament and across all of the women's game, is it based separately from women's, um, you know, the women's game and the shots that come from that and the chances that come from that and subsequently, obviously, the the shot conversion of that. Um, and I was told that it was, yeah, it was the same across the men's and the women's game, which I do think is interesting maybe should there be a, a slight difference in the XG model between the two? I think, as I say, it's a good conversation for another time, but mm. it does seem to to maybe inflate the XG um, a little bit from what we're seeing, that there's a lot of maybe what we deem to be underperformance in the goal scoring compared to maybe the XG. Um, mm. So maybe there needs to be kind of an update or a, a recalibration of the XG model for the women's game. I don't know if that's maybe fair to, to say. No, I think it definitely is. I mean, I am loath to be critical, and particularly of Opta, whose whose work with data is has been groundbreaking and continues to be. But but Michael, it's true that it something doesn't feel quite right in in a dream world that the XG model, which is built on millions and millions of shots taken 
in the men's professional game over many, many years should be the same applied to the women's game where, as we have discussed in various tactical discussions over the last few weeks, there are there are different aspects of the women's game compared to the men's game. The way that it's played out, the way that attacks happen and the, and the sorts of chances that are created, it's not exactly the same and therefore having a model based on something else, I, I think probably wouldn't be the case in a dream world. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> okay, there we go. Well, ho- hopefully, as the as the uh, women's game continues to develop professionally, particularly, and and the the quality of the data collection continues, then that's something that that will be developed over time. And um, certainly, be good to see that. I think. Um, talking of the opta numbers, I will say that uh, Nikki Evra, the Belgian goalkeeper. Uh, has certainly outperformed expectations uh, based on the quality of shots faced, uh, shots on target that she faced. I should say, the average goalkeeper would have been expected to concede nine more goals than she did for Belgium uh, at the Women's Euros. So uh, her star has certainly risen, as have a few other goalkeepers in this tournament. Uh, let's talk about the semi-final between these two sides, England and Sweden, Tuesday, 8 p.m. kickoff. Uh, Michael, it's great to win a game from behind with late, late goals and exciting times it's better to win games comfortably from the front. England might need to be a a bit better from the off here. Yeah, I think so. Sweden are a good team. Um, I think England will have more of the ball than against Spain, but I think Sweden might be all right with that. I think they've struggled to break down deep defences, aside from at set pieces, but they've looked pretty good when they're running into space. Um, Stina Blackstenius hasn't quite found her, her shooting boots, but her movement in behind is excellent. I mean, she runs the channel so well. Uh, Fridolin Rolfo I thought was really good first two games very quiet next two games again I think that that just comes from wanting to play against teams who commit a little bit more to attack and the number 10 well she actually wears number 9 but playing as a number 10 um, Aslani I think has probably been my player of the tournament so far just she's got wow. everything trickery and can play through balls and yeah I, I do I do slightly worry about England's defence against the speed of Sweden I must say but I think England starts favourites. Two days extra rest, I think, is quite a big deal. And yeah, deeper squad as well if it goes through extra time. I think you're right in terms of the, the defence being tested as well. I've spoken about it before in terms of just how important set pieces are within you know international tournaments. And Sweden have scored the, the most from set pieces. Five goals already in this, this tournament from set pieces. So England definitely need to be on their guard for that, should we say. And they'll be tested maybe in behind, but also definitely from those important set plays. I'm confident that Millie Bright will be literally rising to that challenge, um, but but also that we should certainly be aware of, of Black Stenius. Uh, Michael, talk about underperforming XG. Uh, Black Stenius has had the most shots uh, of any attacking player in the tournament. Interestingly, the most shots in the tournament by an individual player so far is Wendy Renard, uh, the French centre-back, uh, who's had the most shots in the tournament um, and hasn't scored a goal from, from any of them, thwarted against Holland a, a few times on Saturday night. Um, 10 shots on target for Black Stenius, which is four more than anyone else, uh, but only one goal scored and she's finished well and then been given offside as well. So it feels like there's one coming, doesn't it? Uh, which must be a, something of a concern for England. In terms of, of, of the way the game might look, uh, you said you, you think England will have the majority of the ball. Just looking at, at those Opta analyst numbers, which they're providing on their site for everyone to, to sift through. Um, in terms of sequences of 10 passes or more uh, in an attack or in a possession. Of course, Spain are right at the top of that in the tournament so far, but England actually the next best and they certainly stand out against the other semi-finalists in terms of um, having that 
more patient build-up in their locker should they need it. Um, certainly against uh, Sweden, that's the case. But Sweden's PPDA numbers is pretty low, which suggests that they are fairly active and willing to try and put a foot in as well. So I think it's a really interesting um, match-up uh, here. For England, the discussion really, because there's there's not many other discussions when it comes to team selection, it, it continues to be about Ellen White versus Alessia Russo in the, in the starting number nine role. I think we know what Wiegmann's answer is, but Michael, it's not ridiculous to keep talking about this and to keep comparing the performances and the skill set of these two strikers. No, I, I think she might go Russo now. Maybe I'm wrong. I've, I've thought it. I thought it all four games, and I've always been wrong. But I mean, her link plays better against better teams. I think you need link play, and I think why it was just peripheral against Spain. She didn't do anything wrong. It's just it's not her skill set. She's a penalty box striker, um, and I think Russo offers basically what White does in terms of penalty box movement and is better at getting the ball to feet. So mm. I would play her, and I think no, nah, she probably won't play her, but. I think I would. <laughs> Huge decisions at this stage of a tournament for, for any manager, you have to say. Um, uh, we think that England's selection and general tactical approach is easy enough to predict. But Michael, uh, in terms of, of basic shape and formation, Sweden are, are the opposite, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they played a couple of systems. They started with three at the back against Netherlands, in part because Blackstinius wasn't fit to start. Then they've been been four two three one since. But um, Peter Gerhardsen has, has experimented a lot with three at the back over the last 18 months or so. And I think he could do it here. I think he'll be a little bit afraid of England's wingers, to be honest, and just basically want an extra defender. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they play whatever you want to call it, 5 for one or 3 for 3 but basically having a front three. They always use two holding midfielders. Um, but I think, yeah, they could use five defenders behind them. Because if, if Sweden have a three at the back or a five at the back, however you want to think about it, from a defensive perspective to, to contain England, that's very useful. But then from an attacking sense, I mean, Sweden created overloads really well against the Netherlands in that, in that first game. And that's how the goal came about as well. And you just think if they're going to have that as well from England's perspective, would it be a wise choice to bring in Alex Greenwood from the start to, to be a more of a defensively competent, um, you know, left back? I know that Rachel Daly has, has done well in the tournament overall, but especially in that second half as you spoke about it, with Spain she did look a bit more like a forward who is playing as a left back because she is she doesn't play in defence for, for her club team so would there be a, a case to say that if Sweden on the attack are going to maybe overload in wide areas would Alex Green would be better to, to play from the start Sweden are, are an interesting they are in an interesting spot aren't they Michael it's a good time to be talking about them really because are they playing within themselves? There's definitely been a sense that Sweden have not lived up to expectation, yet here they are in the semi-final playing against England. Uh, and the question is, are they building up to peak at the right time, as many champions have done in previous tournaments, or are they just not hitting top gear for, for whatever reason? That The answer, as always, will be uh, decided after the fact, but it is an interesting um, moment to be discussing them. Yeah, I'm always a little bit surprised that people kind of have big expectations of these sort of sides at international tournaments because I just think teams that win international tournaments tend to be a bit like this. They're solid defensively. Sweden don't concede many chances. They've got great individuals who maybe aren't playing as well as they would if they played week in, week out for a club team, but they just have enough to get them over the line, You know, whether it's individual brilliance or just forcing pressure, which, which leads to a goal from a set piece or whatever. I mean, I think Sweden have scored eight goals from seven different players or is it nine goals from eight different players I can't quite remember but they are spreading the goals around they score set pieces the midfielders have been chipping in 
And yeah, I think the front, well, I think those three main attackers, Blackstinius, Rolfo and Aslani, although they haven't quite clicked as a pair, that, uh, sorry, as a trio that often, all three at times have been very good. And the goal they scored against Switzerland, the opener with Rolfo, I think it's probably like the slickest team move of the tournament, which is just exactly what you'd expect from, uh, from mm. them. So I think they're being a little bit, not necessarily underestimated, because I think people know they're a good team. They started the tournament as the, the team with the best world ranking. But I think their performances so far have been a bit, maybe there's been a little bit too much negativity. Um, I think they'll give England a good game. So do I. I'm looking forward to it, but mostly nervous about it. Um, we'll be talking about that game and the other semi-final on the next episode, but stay with us because in our second and final part of this one, uh, we'll be running through the two other quarterfinals and previewing an intriguing semi-final matchup between Germany and France. Okay, guys, Germany 2, Austria nil. Mark Carey was on the ground in Brentford for this one. So was Michael Cox. But Mark, uh, I'd be interested to hear how you saw this game. Germany, 2-0 winners against Austria. Yeah, yeah, I was there as a, as a punter. I went there with uh, Art de Roche, one of our Arsenal writers, and it was great fun. Um, it was a really good game as well. I, I thought Austria played really well for, for long periods, especially in the first half. Um, I thought they frustrated Germany for, for quite a while. It didn't really allow them to to play their game, really sort of aggressive in, in the press, really physical. Um, and they had a couple of good chances themselves in those early stages. I think across the course of the whole game, they they hit the post of the bar three times. So they had a few chances. I just think ultimately they kind of lacked the quality and the the sharpness to actually turn some of those those periods of dominance into into a goal, which obviously is the, the difference in, in these sorts of levels. But I think for Germany, I thought Marina Hegering uh, at the back was really composed, showing her experience, played really well. I thought... Lena Oberdorf was controlling things really well in the middle, um, especially in the second half. And I've, you sort of remember, she's only 20 years old as well. Fantastic player mm-hmm. and did really well in the middle. Uh, Clara Buhl really strong down down that left wing. And it was Buhl who created that that first goal in the first half, was it? First half. Um, mm. And yeah, I think she should have had a goal herself. It was actually quite funny to see. She missed the sitter and then had to, it was planned already, but she had to come off uh, immediately after. It was just so unfortunate that it was the timing straight after she'd missed that sitter. But um, she had a really good goal, uh, a really good game. Svenja Huth, um, another really good good game down the right-hand side. Interesting, looked into the numbers of, of Huth and she has the highest expected assists in the tournament so far. So she's created chances worthy of two assists. Again, small sample, but not actually registered an assist yet herself. And then um, Alex Pop, yet again, popped up with a, with a goal, four and four <laughs> for her now. And I think that was... It was sort of coming because the way that they, Germany and specifically Pop, pressed from the front and the way that Austria were playing out from the back quite neatly at times, but ultimately both of the goals came from them sort of messing around with it at the back and then Germany profiting from it as well. So you could sort of see it coming and Germany were pressing really well, led by Pop, and uh, eventually that, that pressing came off, paid off. Michael, it, it did feel like a trap, didn't it? And it reminded me a little of those Liverpool-Man City games last season where Man City's goalkeepers kept getting slide-tackled by Liverpool attackers. It did feel a bit like that, the second goal. Yeah, I completely agree with what Mark said. And um, yeah, I've been really impressed with Austria, actually. I think Irene Furman has completely transformed them from how they played five years ago. They actually got to the semi-finals five years ago which I must admit I'd completely forgotten about. But they got there by playing really defensive, negative football. And this time around, they've been positive. 
They've been proactive. I think at times their pressing has been good. And yeah, they they lost here to a better team. But as Mark says, they lost because they were, if anything, just a bit too ambitious with what they're doing in possession. Um, and I think that's just part of the, you know, it's one of those things you, you're risking that to sometimes just get spells of possession and assert yourselves on, on the game, which at other points they did well. So yeah, I've been impressed with Austria. The one thing this tournament has been lacking is a real... Like real shocks. I think there's been a lot of predictable results, but Austria getting to the the quarterfinals was was a bit of a surprise. And uh, yeah, they've done well. Yeah, you wrote in your piece, it seems fair to crown Austria as the side who have most surpassed pre-tournament expectations. And I read that and thought to myself, if only there was an equine-based <laughs> phrase for that. That, but I, they weren't dark horses, though, were they? I, they were never. They were never dark horses. Google's Dictionary of Phrases says that the meaning of Dark Horse is a candidate or competitor about whom little is known but unexpectedly wins or succeeds. <laughs> if, if that time when Sutton got into the fifth round of the FA Cup, did you think Sutton were Dark Horses for the FA Cup? <laughs> Um, they, they were very impressive. Austria, I know that you're a big fan of, of Billa and Zadrazil as well um, for their performances in this tournament. I'm glad that you brought up Pop. Mark, you went through half the team without mentioning her, but um, <laughs> at the end of last last episode, I did ask you for your standout player so far, and you both mentioned Pop as having been a standout for Germany. And I just I, I liked the sort of narrative arc of her game where um, she showed, you know, you mentioned Buell did make the goal, the first goal, did get the assist, but it was Pop's brilliant presence of mind to, to step over the ball, to dummy it really, to leave the pullback for Magul to finish, who, who was running onto it rather than Pop who'd peeled, peeled off and would have had a, a tougher time finishing. And then, of course, she was the one that, that rolled it across to Buell, who missed the tap-in uh, and then getting the goal in the end, charging down the, the goalkeeper well-deserved, that's for sure. Germany's opponents in the semi-final will be France because on Saturday night they beat the Netherlands 1-0. The French women's quarter-final curse is lifted the first time they've reached the semi-final of this competition. I suggested that Netherlands might need to match France's fire with fire of their own, attacking intent given their vulnerabilities at the back. As it was, they simply couldn't cope. This really was a 1-0 thrashing. Uh, what was it that the Dutch just couldn't handle? I mean, I just thought France were just blistering in attack, especially in the early stages of, of the first half. And looking across the, the whole game, I don't think anyone can deny that France definitely deserved to win 32 shots across the 120 minutes and just nine for the Netherlands. So you can just see just how dominant they were. I think that Vivian Miedemar was, especially again in the first half, kind of not allowed to to get into the game at all. She was fairly anonymous, as I say, especially in that first half. And I don't know how much COVID has, has affected her. Um, you know, I think she was out for two games rather than one. It's tough for her to then come into a, an important game like that. So obviously as one of the key players, I think it was unfortunate that Miedemar was, was unable to get into the game. But um, yeah, the chances that, that France had, they they probably should have won it within 90 minutes. I'd say you look at some of the chances they had. Toletti had a big chance. There were two shots cleared off the line in the first half. Grace Guerrero headed wide from about two yards out in the end. It was slightly above her, so I'll give her benefit of the doubt there. But um, they could have, you know, France could have easily been three or four up and no one would have really yeah. argued otherwise. So definitely deserving to win and quite surprising that it ended up being a penalty that was the winning goal because they had so many good chances. The, the tournament of wingers wide forwards 
continues. Diani was a menace as she has been all tournament for France. And Delphine Cascarino as well is really standing out every time I watch these games. Uh, I note on the Opta Analyst site, um, there she is at the top of most open play chances created. Uh, her ball carrying numbers are brilliant as well. And with end product in terms of um, shot or chance creating uh, carries on that Opta Analyst website. Cascarino has been a, uh, a serious star of the tournament. Um, in, in goal for Netherlands is another Michael van Domselaar, another goalkeeper at this tournament, absolutely thriving and now a household name, having certainly not been previously. Yeah, I, I must admit, I'd never heard of her coming into the tournament and obviously taking over from a, a very experienced goalkeeper who was voted the best keeper at the tournament five years ago. But she's been excellent. And I think the thing that stood out for me is, I think the shot stopping in this tournament has been really good overall. I don't think the, the kind of dealing with crosses has been great, but certainly not her. She's been very comfortable in that aspect. Um particularly in the first game against Sweden. Um, and I think that was that first performance against Sweden was really impressive because Netherlands had three players injured in one incident. The goalkeeper went down and two defenders and they it was just panic at the back. They were completely disorganised that to move defenders around, sub-defenders. She came on and she's this you know young girl. I think she had two caps, maybe one cap at that stage. And she was just so composed. And I think there was a real danger that in that game, the Netherlands were going to completely collapse and they could have done you know, what Italy did against France or what Norway did against England and the tournament just doesn't recover. Um, so yeah, they, I mean, overall the Netherlands will be a little bit disappointed, I think, to only get to the quarterfinals. Obviously a tough draw against France. Um, but yeah, they've been they've been all right. A difficult tournament with them with injuries and stuff. The COVID thing as well. They lost Miedemar mm. for two games. Um, so yeah, just one of those, one of those things. Far be it for me to start sort of hawking players out and with apologies to fans of FC Twente's uh, women's team. That's who Van Domselaar plays for. Michael, I'm just interested to know a little bit about the, the transfer market in the women's game. Is it um, comparable to the men's game or becoming more and more comparable? We're talking about a player that's come from nowhere to have an incredible tournament uh, in a very important position uh, and someone who plays for a club who I presume uh, do not challenge the, the elite uh, of the European game. If I said to you, Van Domselaar will get a, a post-tournament move to the WSL, would would that be a stupid thing to suggest or, or would that potentially be on the cards? It's maybe more like 10 or 20 years ago in the men's game where I don't think these days in the men's game players are really signed on the back of a good Euros, a good World Cup because we know so much about every player. There's so much data on every league. Whereas this is a player who... You know, I'm not sure what the data available is for the women's area divisie. It might not be that extensive. Goalkeepers, I think, you know, we've done pods on this before with Mark, but probably is harder to, to spot a, a good goalkeeper from an obscure league. So if you just throw her into games against the, the best sides in Europe, the best players in Europe, and she looks this composed, it probably is a bit of a, a different game. And, and players probably are a little bit easier to sign. I mean, they have um, the contracts usually aren't as long. So they're easier to get out of. And obviously the, the financial power of the WSL sides at the moment is is uh, is quite considerable. So yeah, it could be could be a good shout. I'm trying to think whether there's anyone who desperately needs a, a good goalkeeper at the top of the English game. Maybe not at the moment, but um, yeah, she's been excellent. No doubt. Well, the, the France-Germany semi-final on Wednesday is full of intrigue. It, it, they feel... Very, very well matched and two teams in, in great nick at the moment, Michael. Uh, preview this game for me tactically. How do you think this will shape up? 
Well, I think they're quite well matched in a way. I think they're quite similar. A lot of sides in this tournament are playing a similar shape, kind of 4-3-3, very wide wingers. Um, I think Germany went from 4-3-3 to 4-2-3-1 against Austria at half-time. And I think that gave them a bit more control in the middle of the pitch. So they've got that flexibility. I think France can do that as well. Um, but yeah, I think this is a really evenly matched game. I would... I actually really don't know who I fancied to win this. I've been so impressed with France's wings. I think they've been excellent throughout the tournament. But Germany do just... They seem a real unit. Um, and they've got real good squad depth as well. So, yeah. I, I guess Germany are favourites. I, I usually kind of check these things but I haven't checked yet I haven't looked at the odds or anything I would guess Germany is slight favourites for this but I really don't know it definitely will be a, a, a tight one I think for me it feels like who might make the most of those transitional moments because they've both got as, as you say Michael they've got devastating wide players and they can both hurt the opposition from from wide and I looked at the, the numbers on on France as well they've had the most direct attacks in, in the tournament so that's possessions that start in a team's defensive half and result in a shot or a touch inside the penalty area within 15 seconds. So, and we know, yeah, as I said, we know how good that Germany are in terms of the high turnovers and, and making the most of those as well. So between the two of them, you think that when they do get the ball, they'll try and get a shot away as quickly as possible. So I think that those transitional moments, I think will be key between the two of them and who can actually then convert and make the most of them, I think will be key. The narrative, even pre-tournament, I seem to remember, was that Germany, if they were to do well, would likely be a, a proper unit, um, you know, the sort of more than the sum of their parts type team that there weren't at that point any obvious individuals for you guys to pick out to to kind of um, preview a big tournament. Of course, they've had some, some great individual performances and Pop's name has popped up once or twice, hasn't it? But um, in terms of France, I think it's worth pointing out that almost in, in the opposite sense, the concern was some off-field shenanigans or some poor feeling amongst the squad and the manager might trip them up. Uh, that hasn't seemed to be the case whatsoever. So it really is two top teams in great form going head-to-head -head on Wednesday night. Uh, and I cannot wait to talk to you guys about it uh, on Thursday. That's when the next episode of this podcast will be coming out, a semi-final recap and previewing whatever our final is next weekend. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to cover this tournament with Mark and with Michael. We're not done yet. Three games of the Women's Heroes left. You know where to be for the best coverage of all of them and any fallout post-final as well. Subscribe to this podcast feed, but also the Athletic Women's Football podcast uh, gives you a daily breakdown of the goings-on in the tournament and of course the Athletic site and app as well for your written content. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is your best bet for the best offer on an annual subscription. We hope that you'll join us next time with thanks to Mark and Michael and to you for listening. Uh, go well and enjoy these semi-finals. The Athletic.